Welcome back to another episode of the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Strength and Speed owner and Mudgear Battle Alliance Pro, Evan Preparis. Got a guest with me online. Before we get to him, though, a quick word from this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Hyperwear. Hyperwear makes weighted vests. They make uh, weighted sandbells. So kind of like the Spartan pancakes people use at Spartan races. They have a weighted bag, uh, kind of a sandbag type thing. But their, their vests are top-notch. So I got my first one, I don't know, it was about two, three years ago. And they are, um, the weights in them are really small, so it's really form-fitting. So it's really great for if you're doing like a Murph workout or you just want to add weight to your obstacle course race training. So, you, you know, if you're going to do that, you want to do it slowly. And Hyperware is really good about that because their, their weights are so small that you can really kind of stair-step and baby-step your way up to a heavier weight to kind of build that muscular strength and muscular endurance. As you know, uh, training for obstacles, if it's not progressive, as in it doesn't get harder as you get better, then it, you're missing out a key, a key component, as I talked about in my book, uh, Strength and Speed's Guide to Elite Obstacle Course Racing. All right, let's get to today's guest. Joining me back, I got Jake Ramsby back. Jake, welcome. Hey, how's it going? So this is the post-show after his Arrowhead 135. So if you missed the episode from a couple of episodes ago, go back and listen to that now. Um, it is talking about Jake's, uh, some of his background, and then we talked about what his expectations were and his thoughts and training and some of the details going into the Arrowhead 135. So let's start off with explaining to people just what the Arrowhead 135 is slash was, and then we will uh, start diving into how your race went. Yeah, so Arrowhead 135 is a 135-mile ultramarathon, uh, kind of a little bit non-traditional compared to what people expect a trail ultra to be. It's more of an ex- expedition style. So you're out in northern Minnesota, early January or late January, early February, where temperatures can you know get down to negative forty plus degrees, um, and it's pretty pretty unsupported. So all of your or the majority of your nutrition, your survival gear, you know tent, bivy, uh, sleeping bag, all that stuff needs to be with you, uh, throughout the race, just in case, you know, weather takes a turn and you're not stranded 20 miles from anyone who can save your life when you're in, you know, freezing temperatures. So how did your race go? Let's, let's start there. And then I'll start diving into more specific questions on the stuff Um, you cover. Uh, not, not as well as planned did not go great. Uh, large port reason for that was I ended up, uh, most likely I had COVID like two weeks beforehand. Mm. So when I'm supposed to be, you know, peaking and really nailing in everything, I was actually on the couch with a bunch of fluid in my lungs, coughing all day. So those last two weeks really leading up to the race, I was not doing well. Um, I did one run, God, was it like four days before the race? I did a run and it was only a very, very light zone one, six mile run. And I struggled hard and coughed for about 20 minutes after that six miler. Mm -hmm. So in my head, I'm like, well, I can barely run six miles right now. About to go and send 135. So I guess we'll see what happens. Um, So everything we talked about actually that first podcast plan kind of completely changed. There was very little chance that I was going to be able to get to any kind of sustained running. Uh, plan kind of came down to, okay, keep it light, just survive. Can you get done with you know just power hiking and staying steady through uh, for sixty hours to to be able to finish? 
Gotcha. And what did your finishing time end up being? Uh, finishing time, I believe, was like 52 hours, nice. something like that. That's a good buffer. You still had a good buffer in there. Yeah, I still had, still had some time. I ended up taking a time penalty, too. Um, so, no, I think I rolled in at like 52 hours. I think online it might say like 54 hours or something like that. Um, at the end of the race, they do a gear check. So, uh, same gear that you had starting the race, there are requirements. You have to have all that gear in working order at the end of the race. Otherwise you get time penalties. So one of my flashing lights, um, they, uh, they dinged me cause one of my flashing lights fell off and I didn't spend any time looking for it. They just pointed out, Hey, your light's gone. I'm like, ah, crap. Um, it had just fallen under like in the sled under my bag so if i would have spent any time at all looking for it i would have found it and there would have been no time penalty but uh i wasn't exactly in the right frame of mind after being out there in the cold for 52 hours i just wanted to get inside and get some coffee gotcha so what did your work uh kind of rest plan look like or did you just go straight for 52 hours nonstop? Uh, pretty close to straight 52. Um, so first section of the race, it was, I don't remember if it was 35 or 36 miles. So essentially a a 50, a little bit longer than a 50 K. So, um, I woke up the morning of stepped outside, took one deep breath into like negative 10 degree weather. And I was coughing like crazy already. So I was like, well, this isn't going to be great. So got on the start line just planned on keeping it super steady did pretty well at that and once temperature started raising up my lungs felt a lot better but yeah first section was about 50k um and that stops at a gateway which is a uh a, like kind of a general store um slash gas station something like that so stopped there to dry out the feet change socks get a little bit of food in me i was maybe there for half an hour 45 minutes something like that before uh moving on um so then it was another you know 35 36 miles until the next station which was kind of at like a resort area so moved for i don't know maybe six hours stopped on the side of the trail to change socks again uh sweaty feet have been an issue of mine and you know when you're in the cold um and moving for that long you start to have like a lot of people dropped out because of trench foot so Mm constantly uh getting the socks changed trying to keep the feet dry um was a little bit of an issue so at that second um second stop which is at mile 72 i believe um i took a nap for i was planning for an hour and a half of sleeping but the little area they had set up for us was blistering hot so I just kept on stripping off more and more clothes and was basically naked at that point. But I mean, all, all the other races are around. So I'm like, I probably shouldn't be stripping anymore. I was still sweating. So ended up leaving that earlier than expected, maybe slept in 45 minutes to an hour, but it was so freaking hot in there. Uh, you know, same deal, chain socks, make sure all my gear is loaded up and uh, got moving again. So maybe, maybe a total of an hour and a half at that, at that, um, second aid station. Okay. And then that last or the third section was our longest section. So that was 42 miles, uh, between any kind of support. So just kept on moving and tried to 
tried to keep a steady pace, but you know, at that point, you know, um, I think 72 miles was about 24 hours in for me. So, um, on an hour and a half of sleep towards the end of that last section, things started to get a little bit, a little bit wild as far as the hallucinations go. Uh, man, I was seeing some weird stuff. So like I specific, I very vividly remember like a stick that turned into ballerina shoes. And I was super confused. I'm like, why are there ballerina shoes in the middle of the Minnesota like wilderness? This doesn't make sense. And I got close to them and I'm like, Oh no, those are tennis shoes. That makes more sense. But I got closer than it was a stick. And I'm like, Oh, it's a stick. That makes the most sense. But then the stick moved on me and I'm like, it's a snake kind of freaked out a little bit. Yeah. So stuff like that just kept on happening like crazy. And I've never had just the, the frequency of those hallucinations happening. I mean, the amount of people that I saw on trail that did not exist was just crazy. Um, I think it's like with exertion and then with the sleep deprivation, the synapses in your brain just are not firing correctly. And your brain's just trying to fill in all those gaps. You know, yep. it sees a shape and it's like, okay, well, what things do I know that kind of resemble that shape? And it fills in those gaps, but it's filling in those gaps crazy incorrectly. Um, I have never hallucinated so much in my entire life. It was crazy. Um, was, was it all nighttime hallucinations or did you get some daytime ones too? I was getting some daytime ones too. Ooh, um, that's good. That, that means yeah. you're really, that's you're really <laughs> that's, in, the, in a dark place. That's when you know you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Because uh, I feel like the, night, the nighttime ones will come significantly before um, just because there's less light. So your brain, like you said, your brain is trying to fill in gaps. Um, but when, oh, yeah. you're, when it's daytime, you're, you're sleep and uh, physically sleep deprived and physically exhausted. That's impressive. It always is. Yeah. It's not, I do not recommend. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think one of my, my, one of my favorite ones is I had just got done, like, you know, stepped off to the side of the trail, peed into the snow bank. And then my headlamp was, pointed into the snow and like all the crystals in the snow like started dancing so it was like a kaleidoscope like it was like pulsating in and out like the snowbank was pulsating in and out at me all the crystals were like spinning in circles and it was like a kaleidoscope i was super zoned out on that but uh yeah so that that was probably the scariest uh, scariest section because you know once i got 40 miles in two miles left to the aid station you don't necessarily know where you are or where the aid station is and um i started drifting on trails a little bit you know i don't necessarily you know remember a large portion of that um it's kind of just like zombie crawling through mm-hmm. which during a normal you know during a normal ultra that zombie crawl where you're like totally out of it and kind of like you're drunk stumbling home from the bar that's fine but in a race like this, where it's like, okay, at that time, it was probably getting close to, you know, negative 15 degrees or something like that. Uh, a couple hours after that happened, it was dropped down to like the negative 20s. So, you know, if something happens and, you know, you go off into a snowbank, you drift off trail, you don't get into your emergency bivy. That's no longer like a, oh, crap, he wandered off a little bit. It's a, oh, he's dead and has frostbite. Uh, yeah. So. So it definitely got a little bit sketchy and I guess I didn't really realize how bad it had been until like after the fact, kind of remembering back and I was like, holy shit, like that was kind of a little bit dangerous. Um, but stopped at that state, that ed station, got a little bit of food in me, dried out the socks or dried out the feet, changed socks, jumped in my bivy, um, 
and then you know I slept for an hour and a half in the bivy woke up got into the I got into the cold air and that's when I was like in the negative 20s at that point lungs hit the air, air hit the lungs and it was like a coughing fit for five minutes again mm. I could just feel all that fluid that was left over my lungs I'm like well shit and I think this is like mile 112 or something like that um so I went back to sleep, but kept my bivy, uh, bivy open so I can consistently like breathe a little bit of that cold air just to get the lungs used to it again. Slept for another hour, hour and a half, something like that. Um, and then was able to, you know, get up and get moving. But then I got screwed over a little bit more in that aid station. Um, as I was loading up my stuff, I keep a, I have a special hydration bladder that my body keeps it warm. So I was having one of the volunteers fill that up and I told him to put cold water in it because then my body can heat it. And I think he got that a little bit confused and then he put hot water in it so it could heat my body. Mm. And then feeling that in the hydration bladder, it, I think the plastic insulated it enough though. I didn't realize exactly how hot it was. So I was like, okay, it's going to be warm. Maybe I'll take a layer off as I get started because this will keep me pretty hot. So I loaded it up, threw it on my back, threw my layers on, and within two minutes, it melted through that plastic because he used like boiling coffee water in it. Jeez. Yes. <laughs> it's negative 20 degrees. I have boiling water spilling down my back and burning me. I'm swearing up a storm, yelling at the volunteers to like strip me naked to get this like off me because it's strapped to my body um i had a big red mark down my back from where it burned me luckily no blisters or anything like that but you know now all my gear is completely soaked um and it's negative 20 degrees out so i'm like shit now i gotta get into my bag find all my backup gear throw that stuff on um plus going out in the last 22 to 24 mile section with two liters less of of available water so um, that was definitely a big thing that I was, I was considering is like, I'm going to be a little short on water coming into the end of the race. Mm. So, uh, ended up working out fine. Um, is actually that last 20 some miles was my best section that I had. I got maybe 13 miles into it and kind of just started feeling good. It warmed up. My lungs were feeling good. I did not want to finish when it was dark out. So the last probably 13 to 15 miles, I ended up just, you know, running. And that was really the only section that I, besides the very beginning that I actually ran the whole race was the last uh, 13, 15 miles. Um, That actually finally started feeling good. Do you think, obviously having getting COVID or getting sick, whatever you had beforehand was not good. But do you think um, that, caused you to play it safer and pace better uh for this event like is there a danger you know in hindsight do you is there a danger you could have gone out too fast and kind of uh, burnt out oh 100 percent. yeah yeah there's a lot of a huge chance that i could have burnt out too fast and screwed myself um i mean there was quite a few people in front of me at the beginning of the race who I was passing and they were considering dropping out because, you know, they didn't take the time to change their socks and they were starting to get trench foot or, you know, their sled feels so much heavier once you get into the hilly section because they burnt themselves out on the flat section the very, mm. in the very beginning. Um, so there, there's definitely a lot of that. I mean, the, the aid station at mile 72, when I came into there, there was four or five people who were 
there before me who are pulling out. Um, now some of them were skiers or bikers who are naturally going to get there faster than me, but some of them were runners too. And they were just, you know, they got into that 72 mile part and they're like, yeah, there's no way in shit that I'm even going to try this long, um, long section of the race. Gotcha. So we, we did have a question come in, um, from one muddy Johnson who I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure, sure you know who that is. That oh, yeah. is for, for those who don't know, that's uh, Christian Brown Johnson. So we mentioned him on the last podcast. He's one of the hundred mile finishers at world toughest mutter, uh, 2021. So his question was, how well did Keto Bricks sustain your energy? Oh, yeah. So the Keto Bricks did awesome for about 72 miles. And then I was so unbelievably sick of them. Um, I, I planned on having, so I think I brought four or five Keto Bricks with me on the, on the race. And I was planning on eating at least one of them between each aid station. Um I, I think I made it through two and a half of them. Um, I, they just, it wasn't that they were bad. They were definitely sustaining my energy and hunger levels very, very well. It was more the, the texture and consistency of them and just constantly nibbling on those things. Mm. I mean, you've done enough ultras to know you have a nutrition plan, you start it. And then whatever you're eating just starts to you just start hating whatever it is. Even if it's working for you on a nutritional basis, you just start hating it. And that's what happened to me. Um, I just, I couldn't keep on eating those things. Um, but I would definitely coming back in the future to the, to a race like this, I would, will, I will 100% bring bringing them just bringing less of them, um, knowing that I can tolerate probably two of them per race. And then after that, uh, I just can't do anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. I make it about 20 hours ish, uh, for world's toughest drinking, just uh, perpetuum. So hammer nutrition's fat carb protein blend. And then after that point, I'm like, mm, I need something else. Like this is still, I will still drink some of this, but I'm not consuming it in the quantity I was before. And when I did like OCR America and OCR America too, I, I would start off in perpetuum every day. And then immediate, like pretty soon after I'd switch to some more solid food, just to make sure I'm getting calories and just kind of change up the flavor profile there. So I, I feel you there. Definitely. So yeah. now that you've done it, um, two related questions to that. So one is let's start off with this one. I asked you what was going to be the worst part last time. Do you, and, and basically you were like, everything's going to be the worst part, the cold, the <laughs> sleep deprivation, the tiredness, the distance. So now that it's done, um, I'm going to ask you the same question. What was the worst part? Uh, I mean, probably the fear based, the, the fear aspect of it, which okay. was more of the fear of like the fear of going into the race, not being 100%. And this by far being the scariest race I have done in my career and then coming into it, like I probably felt like at 70% and that freaked me out. Mm. Um, but I mean, if you, if you go away from just like things that are out of our control and like specifically like race based things, what is the worst away from, you know, the illness, I would probably say it has to be the sleep deprivation, like never doing a race that takes that long and just the monotony of it was just horrible. Um, 
I remember, I specifically remember one time where I asked someone on course, I was like, Hey, like any, what's the estimate for, you know, how far are we till the, to the aid station? I think this was on the 42 uh, mile segment. Um, and they're like, Oh, it's like 10 miles. So then we kept on pace with that same person for about four hours, about four hours in, I was like, okay, we got to be getting relatively close at this point. Um, how far do we think we are asking someone else? And like, Oh, at least 12 miles. I'm like motherfucker. Oh. <laughs> like, like four hours ago, someone said 10 miles and now you're saying 12. Um, so I guess if anyone plans on doing that race, do not trust a single soul for how far things are from you, unless they have done the race multiple, multiple times. Uh, Cause no one knows, no one has any idea where anything is. Maybe people know where the first checkpoint is and the second checkpoint, but I guarantee you no one out there uh, has any idea where that third checkpoint is. Gotcha. Now, there, you know, we talked about a little bit about the sleep deprivation. Is there any tricks or techniques you started using um, towards the end of the race that help deal with the sleep deprivation, or do you just is just power through it? And is that basically the solution? Is that it? Um, I'd say there's more more options than just powering through it. So, like when I started to feel like things were going very badly. Um, and I was just, you know, starting to struggle, starting to get down on myself, you know, not moving necessarily the fastest, uh, take advantage of what you can control. So for me, a sock change changed my world every single time that I did a chop sock change, sock change mid, um, like between checkpoints. So just sit down on the trail, take your shoes off take your socks off, make sure that you keep your shoes in some of the warm area. Like I was actually putting them under my, uh, under my jacket because you'd be surprised how quickly they freeze and then you won't be able to get your feet into them. Um, so take the shoes off, put them in your jacket, get a little blanket down on the ground, put your feet on it, wrap your feet up in some kind of dry, anything that you have in your, uh, in your supplies, get the new socks out, and it is amazing how well or how much better you will feel and how much more energy you will have simply by changing your socks. So that was a huge one for me. And then finding, I mean, same thing with like a WTM, you know, if you find what treat just pumps you up, you know, you have that specific nutrition thing where you're feeling down and you know that you have that because you love that. It's going to pump you up so much. Um, so having, having those really helped. And, uh, that ended up turning out to be for me, um, a company called Embark, which was actually a sponsor of Arrowhead. Uh, they're kind of like, uh, maple dude, uh, where they, this is a maple syrup based like squeeze pouch. And those things saved my life. Um, uh, yeah, I really love those. So that was definitely pumped me up as well. I love that you literally, so my, my new book that's coming out in April is, um, it's called on endurance, a practical or I'm going to butcher my own book name, a practical guide to achieving superhuman performance or something like that. Right. It was just basically like, here are like no shit techniques that you can use to make yourself a better endurance athlete. And you literally quoted like several of them. 
So, um, and where I'm getting a lot of the information for the book, besides like obviously my own personal knowledge is I'm basically, I'm taking a bunch of the old podcasts and I'm cutting and pasting, uh, quotes from my guests. So you are now going to be in the book because you literally said, what's already, what's already written in there. So I will send you a (laughs) uh, draft of your section, uh, at some point in the next two months for you to review before we, uh, we hit publish on that bad boy. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to, now that you've done the race once, um, hypothetically, let's say you're going, or like, what would you change going into the race now that you have the experience, right? Like, let's say you're, let's say you are definitely going to do it again. You know, what would you adjust, whether it be gear choices, pacing, um, I, I don't know, food choices, oh but we gosh. talked about food over a little bit already. So, yes, so much stuff. Um, so for the drift 100, that's more in the mountains. So uh, stability of your pulk, so the like sled setup you have behind you is a lot more important because you can be doing a lot more side hill activity where the pulk can get away from you and start sliding and pulling you downhill. Versus this race, um, everything was pretty straightforward. And then if you're going up a hill, you're going straight up a hill. And if you're going down a hill, you're going straight down a hill. So my sled setup uses. Uh, rigid poles between me and the sled so that sled and myself are one unit so we function really well together but that means anytime that i want to get into my bag or anytime like you know you're jumping on the sled to try to sled down one of those long hills instead of run down one of those long hills i have to unclip myself take those poles back sit down on my sled go down the hill and then get up off the sled re-clip myself in and that takes a crap ton of time. Uh, one of the individuals who I was pacing with for probably 25 miles, uh, I was a significantly faster hiker than her, but anytime a hill came up, she would gain probably three, four minutes on me. And no, when we're going over that many hills, that's a significant amount of time. So in the future, I would definitely switch out for that specific race, instead of having the poles, I would end up going with a rope system. So you never actually have to unclip your belt because that takes a ridiculous amount of time. Mm. Um, so that I would definitely cut down on some of my backup gear. Um, and you know, just have one. I would, so I had a lot of backup gear and it's actually essentially like extra weight. Um, so I'd cut down on weight, have less gear than I'm actually bringing with me. And then I want to switch what kind of bag I actually have in the pulp. So right now I just have one big bag and I'll switch that to like uh, two medium bags. So that way when like moving into the aid station or, you know, if you're just specifically looking for a certain kind of gear, those are segmented a little bit Mm. versus only being able to, you know, open the big bag and then have to ruffle through that whole big bag where I have two, you know, like two bags. Okay. Maybe bag one is nothing but, you know, food and like immediate necessity, necessity race gear bag two is more of like, okay, emergency stuff that I'm more likely not going to have to use, you know, like your stove, uh, stove fuel, sleeping bag or whole sleep system, stuff like that. So just getting a little bit better organized, I think would be pretty darn beneficial. So yeah, there's a crap ton of stuff that I would change. I feel like that's the biggest thing moving into a, a race system like this is 
you can't just rely on, you know, fitness. Probably 60, 70% of it is just understanding your gear and how to use it. Gotcha. So if anyone's looking at doing the Arrowhead 135, reach out to Jake. Or, you know, we, we can take that same lesson and apply it to OCR, right? If you're an OCR athlete who's never done World's Toughest Mudder, it may not, it's not as big of a jump as something like this, right? Um, as far as like some of the nuances, but you want to ask someone who's done it before. And, and realistically, you want to ask someone who's, you know, knows a thing or two um, before you. That's about all I know. I know, I know a thing or two at this <laughs> point. Um, so yeah, if you want to reach out, I'll, I'll either have an answer for you or, you know, I'm starting to build up a decent amount of friendships in that community um, of people who know significantly more than I do. And I can definitely uh, hook you up with some of those guys. Gotcha. Now, you know, you keep mentioning the sled. What, like, what does the sled look like? Is it a something specifically designed for this type of event, or are people showing up there with like, you know, the um, what's the sled? The famous sled from Rosebud there, the uh, or like oh, you know the cheap Walmart stuff. Like, is is it a specifically designed for like endurance trekking over snow? Um, so I guess the kind of sled that I have is kind of a it's kind of a mixture. So the it's a Paris sled. Uh, you can get them an REI. You look on RA right now, you can find the Paris Expedition sled. Um, but then, you know, you build it out, you know, throw some rivets in there, throw some other uh, different attachments in there so that you can effectively strap your bag to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I would definitely wouldn't use like a normal Walmart bag yeah, or so- Walmart one at all. You, you want something specific that's going to track decently well, but you can go on like a was it skipolk.com and they have a whole bunch of uh different racing specific um sled setups that you can end up buying um whether it's paris one that i have they think they have a build out for that otherwise they have like the actual they're like segmented plastic um molded plastic ones that a lot of the people who are actually running fast end up using so i just i just googled it as we were talking and it looks I mean, it, it, it looks not that much different from like the cheap ones you buy from Walmart, but I'm, but based off the price, it, I'm sure it is much stronger and sturdier and, uh, basically runs better essentially. But I was, I'm actually surprised it is not something, I don't know, more complicated. I don't know what I was expecting, but if you look at some of the, some of the molded ones, I mean, if you're looking at the Paris one, kind of the orange one, yeah, Paris expedition orange. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you dig, dig deeper, deeper into it you'll end up seeing like they're they're like white ones where that looks like almost like a medieval armor where you know they kind of fold in and under themselves uh, mm. i don't know how to explain it probably sounds stupid but whatever uh <laughs> but they're, they're definitely a lot fancier looking as far as a uh as far as a unit but those ones i mean every sled choice that you have is going to have you know, pluses or minuses. So the Paris expedition sled is a little bit heavier, but it tracks a lot better. Um, but it also, you know, if it's snowing, it collects snow because there's extra gaps within your sled and your bag mm. versus the, the molded ones actually kind of pull tight to whatever bag you're having. So you're going to have less weight as far as the sled itself, less weight as far as potential snow getting into the sled. But 
it doesn't track as well. So, you know, if you're side hilling more or, you know, having to run some downhills where the sled's going to be chasing you, it's going to be kind of wobbling all over the place compared to just uh, keeping in a single track. Gotcha. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, the, the follow-up to that is, would you ever do this again? Or is this a one-time bucket list, check the block uh, um, type event for you? Uh, I don't, I don't know yet about Arrowhead. Uh, next year I'm planning on doing Tascobia 160. So Oof. a little bit easier of a, <laughs> no big deal. Just, sort of get, just attack on another marathon ish. Uh, yeah, that's, that's all good. But, uh, Tascobia, Tascobia 160 is, you know, less up and downs, uh, much more forgiving weather environment most of the time uh i guess the issue they've had the last couple of years has been more of heat like this year up last year they didn't have a decent snow base so you're essentially dragging your sled on gravel for 160 oh. miles um and a couple of years prior to that it was more rain than snow so you know just the wetness really took a lot of people out um from my understanding based on like difficulty Tascobia is not considered as like holy shit as arrowhead so even though it is you know 25 miles longer uh, but that's the last big north american one i believe um are these southern states that i need to complete so plan is to do tascobia next year and then kind of start reevaluating whether i want to try to do some of these completely unsupported so not being able to go into the you know warm huts and stuff like that um and relying completely on your own camping stove and stuff. Uh, otherwise, is that a different division or different division? Yeah. Okay. So there's the unsupported division, you know, where it's like, okay, you have to do everything on your own. You're not even allowed to like refill up water by yourself mm, or, or at these stations. So you have to like boil, either find a water source or um, melt snow, stuff like that. Um, so truly all alone. Um, so, so potential. Re- random story i've i've thought about doing that i'm going to share it with you because i don't i'm not I'm not planning on doing it. i thought about doing that for as one of my charity events is basically do world's toughest motor unsupported so like you carry everything with you and you never stop at the pit um that'd be cool it'd be yeah it, i think it's it'd be something interesting and something different um i don't know maybe i'll do it in a couple of years if no one else has still done it would but. you force yourself to take whatever support bag you have through the obstacles or would you- yes Okay. So, good. So the idea would be like, if, if you're going to put on a wetsuit, it's in your backpack. If you're going to eat food, it's in your backpack. If you're going to drink water, it's in your backpack. Right. So like literally nothing, like you, you leave that start line and you don't, you don't grab food. You don't grab anything. You don't get clothes, changing socks, shoes, whatever. Um, that would be the concept, but um, I think that'd be a fun thing to watch and see how you do. Yeah. I would enjoy that. <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't enjoy doing it myself. I would enjoy watching you do it. <laughs> so and i got again i i'm not super inventive i i just steal other ideas from other sports and because i got the idea from ultra cycling which there's a event they call red i'm gonna butcher the name red Radner, rear red eh. rearing or something i don't know you, you you cycle but you carry all your own stuff right it's like okay. you have these like big saddlebags type thing but no, anyway that's what your your story reminded me of that Okay. Uh, interesting. So what is it about the snow ultras that's, uh, drawing you in and drawing you back? Um, yeah. So anyone who's done an ultra knows that 
it changes you. I mean, you don't come out of your first ultra the same person that you started with. And the more aggressive the race is, you know, those races continue to change you. Mm. Um, I have never had like, it's like a spiritual experience um, during a race until starting to do the, you know, winter ultra stuff. Like when you're truly out there, it's like, oh yeah, I could totally die right now. Um, there's just something about it. You know, I, I love the winter. I love the silence that the snow creates with, um, just dampening all the sound around you. And I don't know, there's something about being into that kind of environment, 20 miles away from any kind of help or support and, you know, spending six hours without seeing a single human and knowing that it's kind of your responsibility to survive. And, um, yeah, it, it definitely changes you more than any other race that I've ever been part of. So I think that's what keeps on drawing me back. Love it. All right, last two questions, then we'll let you go. I know after listening to our last podcast, people are going to want to know, did you step in your own or sit in your own poop again? <laughs> uh Oh man, I don't even know where to go with this. So, <laughs> I don't like how this is starting. To be honest, I'm gonna be honest. I will say, okay, I will say that I, I, I came out of the race without pooping on myself, without stepping or falling into my own poop. I was poop free as far as my body is concerned. Um, I, I guess. Oh shit. So. I went into the race with my med kit, right? So I knew what my med kit had in it, which includes, you know, like your lubricants and stuff like that in case you start to chafe. So at some point getting into that stuff, that little container froze and busted. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I lost all of that. And I was like, oh, well, that kind of really sucks. I don't have really access to any kind of lubricant or anything like that. But I think that was right after mile 72. So um, I think I ended up throwing that stuff away at the second aid station because I was just too worried it was going to get into all my other stuff and cause chaos. So I threw that stuff away, which uh, ended up being a pretty big mistake. Um, The last trek... I was, you know, just left, left the third aid station, or maybe it was right before I came to the third aid station. I was chafing pretty hard. I had the butt chafes. The butt Mm. chafes were not doing very well at all. Um, to the point that, you know, it didn't matter if I changed my socks. It didn't matter if I got my happy nutrition, nothing was helping how much my ass was burning from the butt chafes. Um, so I made a sacrifice and I, um, I, I used my um, chapstick, mm. so I, I chapsticked my butt. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazing. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, so safe to say I didn't use that chapstick again, <laughs> so my lips got pretty chapped up and, and bleeding, um, but my butt felt better for the rest of the race, so uh, I guess you just have to do do what you can. <laughs> That is an amazing story. Um, if anyone wants something that's already in a chapstick type form, Squirrel's Nut Butter makes a, it looks like a deodorant bar, but that's, that's the anti-chafe product they use, or I use. So it's, it looks like a deodorant bar, but you know, you can rub it 
anywhere you want. Um, I would not put that on your lunch after I've used it <laughs> either. Uh, that's a really bad idea. I know Ashley, Ashley's posted pictures of her son who's thought it was chapstick and has like, it's she, she's putting it on his lips. And I'm, I'm always like, oh man. I was like, I'd have to wash my kid's mouth out with soap if they, if they did the same thing. Uh, oh, that was a good story. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So just take away all my self-confidence on your show every time. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, ultra sports is not, it's not, it's not a pretty sport, you know, like uh, you're going to get, there's going to be some really dark times. You're going to do some things that you would never consider doing if you were well-rested or well-fed, um, you know, you'll, you'll just, you just be like, well, this is what my life has come to. And this is what I am going to do to make this issue go away. So, you know, I've, I feel you. I feel you. I think anyone who's yeah. done ultras, <laughs> um, you know, more than a couple has gone through something similar. Uh, yeah. Good stuff. All right. Any, before we go, any final things you want to share? Um, other things you're I looking forward to? The rest of the year? <laughs> Did we, we missed any key topics about the Arrowhead 135 or I think we, oh, I, I guarantee we did, but uh, I'm sure they'll come up at some point. There's just, I mean, when you're out there that long, there's a shit ton of things that's things that come up. So, yeah. All right, Jake. Well, thanks again for coming on. Um, any final shout outs you want to give? Uh, I guess to, was it Embark Maple? Um, shout out to them. I mean, they were awesome in the race and I'll be uh, trying to help them prototypes through some of their uh, products coming up here. So give them a shout out. Sounds good. And uh, what's your first, what's your next race on the calendar or you're even considering once you recover? Oh man. Uh it's either one of the toughest, um, either one of the toughest, which I'll probably do one as a team and one solo. Otherwise, maybe throw myself into a Spartan Ultra coming up. All right. Sounds good. All right, everyone. Uh, head over to TeamStrengthSpeed.com. Again, we got the Bleg Mitts in stock. You can head over on the uh, website. There's a little bit of information about the new book that I mentioned earlier. It's called On Endurance. And then, obviously, all my other books are available there. Got a bunch of articles out. They're on OCR Buddy, Mudgear Blog, and the OCR Report. Um, if you're listening, not sure when this publishes or when my other podcast publishes, but I was interviewed on the OCR Report with Will Hicks. I'm sorry, the World Toughest Podcast, I guess I was, this is his podcast, yeah. I was on that with Will Hicks, so you can uh, head over and listen to that um, if it's up or wait a couple more days, and then it should be up. And then I've got an, another cool article on the OCR Report. Again, it should be up by the time this comes out called um what am, I, what am i naming it something about uh the ocr pro league right so i have a, a concept or a prototype to create an obstacle course racing uh, professional obstacle course league and um it's kind of lays out how you can do it at a very low cost that's mutually beneficial to the athletes mutually beneficial to the race companies and uh, essentially it creates a series in the u.s so I don't have the time or energy or uh, effort to actually put it into play. So I thought I would just share the concept with people. I actually wrote the article a couple of years ago and me and Will Hicks started talking about it. And I was like, Oh, well, I have a concept of that. Uh, maybe it's time to dust it off and share it with the world. So that's what I did. And you can go over and check that out. All right. Uh, Jake, thanks again for coming on. And I will see you probably at a toughest. Uh, if we don't cross paths earlier. Sounds good, man. All right. We'll catch you later. All right, bye.